So I'm going to get back into more of a uh, teaching on Matthew tonight. Um, it, was a, it was a teaching on Matthew last week, I guess, but it was uh, pretty narrowly focused. Um, so the goal tonight is to look at the, the outline of Matthew. It's a fascinating outline. I think of all the Gospels, it's um, the, the structure of Matthew speaks to me. And, and that's really what I was thinking about this week. I was thinking, you know, we, we need to just go through the book, <laughs> do, do some more survey work in the book uh, before we run out of time. And so I wanted to do the outline and the, 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 uh, the structure of the book. But I've got also a, a point, I think, that, that goes along with that, uh, or maybe it's a series of points, or maybe it's one big point, um, that I think will become apparent as we, as we get to the end. So we're going to start sort of more teachy, and we'll end more preachy. Um, so bear with the, bear with the beginning. It, it, it is going to be a lot of information and sort of notes heavy. Uh, and, then I, and then I've got some, some applications I'd like to draw. Uh, if you can draw an application from an outline of a book, which I think I think we can. All right. Um, so the uh, the way Matthew is structured, um, and I, I want to focus mostly on the middle, the big middle section. There's a beginning, which is chapters one through three, and that's the birth story, uh, the preparation for ministry, the baptism. And uh, even the temptation comes at the beginning of chapter 4. In chapter 4, uh, verse 12, uh, Jesus begins his ministry. And then there's an ending. And the ending starts in chapter uh, 26. And that's when he comes into Jerusalem. And then we have the, the crucifixion and resurrection story. So... The middle section, which is bracketed by the birth story and the crucifixion and resurrection story, is what I want to focus on mostly tonight and the way that that is structured. Okay? Um, one common way of outlining this, and you'll see this in a lot of different commentaries if you read, um, is to look at this middle section as five large blocks that alternate narrative, you know, the, the story, with a, a large chunk of Jesus' teaching, like a longer extended section. Um, and these are the reason that this has become a common way to outline Matthew is because there are five times in this middle section where Jesus, where, or where the, the, the narrative says, and when Jesus had finished these sayings or these parables or this teaching, um, and that's sort of a wrap up of that section. All right, so there's a story, big chunk of, chunk of teaching, and then the next section starts with, and when Jesus had finished saying these things. So I want to give you those, where those markers are, um, just so you can kind of be aware. And I have, them, I have them noted in my Bible, and it helps me to, to, to keep in mind where I am in the story. Uh, because if you know where you are in the story, if you know the, the kind of the chunk you're in, the, the section you're in, uh, it goes a long way to help you. We were talking Thursday night about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there's lots of one-liners in the Sermon on the Mount. But they really start to come to life when you, when you read them in the context of the whole sermon. Okay? Um, Jesus builds, he really has a few key points that he's building on the whole time. It's not just a series of proverbs or sayings. Okay? He's really making some big points and making them in several different ways. Um, that's why I think it's important to, to know these markers, know where we are when we're approaching you know, any given section of Matthew. 
All right, so it's in seven. Uh, the first one's in 728. It's right after the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And the next one's in 11.1, beginning of chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. The next one's in 13.53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues, so that they were astonished, and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Uh, The fourth one is in chapter 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And so coincidentally, I mean, you've, you've heard just as we've buzzed through these, it also kind of signals a major geographical shift, too. Like he, he was in here in this area. And when he finished that, he moved on to this area. Uh, but it's also moving on in the story to sort of a different main emphasis. OK. And then the final one is in uh, chapter 26, verse one. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So those markers are not just, uh, they're not just uh, a way of telling the story. It's, um, it really uh, closes off one section and, and kind of sends you off into another section, either geographically or thematically. Um, the purpose of the story uh, goes to the next stage, all right? So if those close off the sections, then, then what are the, the sections? And there's five of them. And some people have uh, pointed out that, well, there's five of these sayings and there's five books of Moses and Matthew is obviously you know, echoing that structure. Maybe or maybe not. Uh, I can definitely say that he is certainly echoing the Old Testament. We looked at that a lot two weeks ago. Um, Absolutely, he is the, the Old Testament gospel. Uh, so the first section begins in chapter 4, verse 12, and then ends where we said in, in 728. And the narrative portion of this first section is pretty brief. Okay? It just consists of basically Jesus beginning his ministry. Um, and at that time, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, he calls the, the first four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And there's a brief note about how his fame just like spread like wildfire. Okay? And there were all sorts of people bringing him. So it says, and his fame spread throughout all the region. And people brought their sick to him, and he was healing them all. And then chapter 5 begins, seeing the crowds. So... One of the points in this story is that right away, when Jesus came on the scene, there was lots of interest and lots of buzz, okay? That fame is, is an interesting word. It's, it's the Greek word from where we get echo. <laughs> it was echoing all over the place. And people were hearing about Jesus from here and there and all sorts of different places, every angle. You would hear about Jesus. Hey, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? This is pre-Twitter, right? But... Uh, 
That's basically what was happening. It was going viral. It was echoing everywhere. Um, the, the, this is the longest discourse section of, of any, you know, of single, single discourse. And it's the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Um, so just a few verses of narrative, really. About 12, 13 verses. And then three whole chapters of one continuous teaching. All right, and this is the largest chunk of, of single chunk of Jesus' teaching that we have in all the Gospels. And uh, it's a very thorough treatment of how to live life in the kingdom. Um, and we, we've been studying it all semester at UCF. It's awesome. And that's what it is. It's a, it's a description of life in the kingdom or life in the Father's house. He likes to bring, constantly bring it back to you will be sons of the Father, who is of your Father in heaven. Okay, after the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 8 through 10 are the second chunk. And really what this focuses on, right off, right as he comes down from the mountain, it says he came down from the mountain, and then there's, boom, like eight miracles right in rapid succession. Okay. So he's teaching, and he's saying a lot of things, but right in chapter 8, he starts to just do miracle after miracle after miracle. Actually, a lot of them have uh, touched Gentiles as well. Eight miracles in quick succession. I, thought, I think this is an interesting portion. Um, right when he comes down from the mountain, uh, verse 5 of chapter 8, the centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Um, at the end of the story of the centurion, he says this, verse 11, I tell you, or sorry, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Right? If you remember where you are in the story, where are you? You've just come down from the mountain. Moses has just come down from the mountain. And where does he see faith happening? It's in the Gentiles. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you. And this is pretty much a direct uh, allusion to the Isaiah 2 scripture that we've talked about a lot that I uh, mentioned after the fast, where the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up and all nations will come to it. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. People are going to come from all over the place while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness and that's, that's really a, a good way to, to, in a nutshell, to describe uh, the, the story that Matthew is telling. He's telling how Jesus is fulfilling, actually fulfilling the mission of Israel, what was always the mission of Israel, where the current stewards of uh, those who, as he says later on, who sit in the seat of Moses, have utterly failed to do. And it's those sons of the kingdom who are going to be cast out. And, it, and he has some, some special language reserved for them <laughs> later on, the Pharisees. The discourse in this section, so that's the narrative. It it's largely has to do with miraculous works. There's eight quick miracles right, right off the bat. Um, and then he, the, the, the discourse there, so he has done these miracles. He has his disciples with them. Chapter 10 is the next uh, teaching block. 
And it's when he identifies the 12 apostles and sends them out to go and uh, do the things that he's been doing. And he focuses on, the focus of his commission is that, listen, what you can expect from people is what you've been seeing the way that people have been treating me. Right? Some some will receive you, but others are going to not understand. And that's because, he clarifies, I've not come to the earth to bring peace. Now, he is the Prince of Peace, and he does make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. He makes peace in one way, but another way, this is like what we were talking about last week. The reality of Jesus makes you decide. (laughs) He says, I'm coming to bring everyone to the point of decision. Who do you say that I am? So the second discourse is the identification of the 12 apostles and training them and sending them, commissioning them. Uh, so then the next section begins in chapter 11 and runs all the way through, uh, halfway through chapter 13. The narrative a portion of this is chapters 11 and 12. And this section is, is about um, questioning and, and growing opposition to the kingdom. Okay, it begins with John saying, listen, are you really the guy? <laughs> Which is interesting because John, you know, John seems to be bold and really sold out on Jesus. But then from prison, he says, are you the one? Or are, are we gonna, do we need to look for another? It's in this section that we see uh, John questioning Jesus. The Pharisees begin to accuse him and plot against him. The disciples, uh, to greater measures, that they follow him. Uh, we see uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida denounced as cities that have rejected him. And... Uh, he pronounces condemnation on them. And then he has a couple sections where he defines who the true family of God is. All right, so again, this further development of what the kingdom is, and, but, but growing, growing questions and skepticism, particularly from the Pharisees, um, and even growing antagonism. So then the discourse, the teaching block in this section, is all of chapter 13, or most of chapter 13, and it's one after the other of parables of, about the kingdom. Parables about the kingdom. Deep knowledge about the kingdom uh, told through uh, simple stories. Stories that are told so that those with ears to hear can hear. And those whose hearts are hard will remain hard. Right? That's why Jesus told things in parables. So that those who wanted to really hear could hear. And it would remain, and that was how he dealt with crowds. How do you deal with a crowd? Well, tell a story in a way that will capture those whose hearts really are seeking for the right reasons. And will kind of keep at bay those who, who, aren't, who are not worthy, right, to be called his disciple. So, um, and then the, the, so the fourth section is in chapter 13, 53, all the way through chapter 18. And you could call this, 
Uh, there's, there's a lot of things you call this. But, but what I call it is the growing divide. And this is a pretty crucial section in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees are getting more oblivious and more desperate <laughs> and more flustered. Uh, and the disciples are beginning to go all in on Jesus, all right, especially in chapter 16. Uh, Jesus, it's in this portion of the narrative that he, he reveals his end game to his closest followers. He explicitly refers to, I'm going to die and on the third day I will be raised. Right? He's not saying, he's not alluding to it in any uh, figurative way. He's just saying, my end, my end game is Jerusalem, death, and resurrection. Chapter 16 is crucial. This is where he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And he has the exchange with Peter. Uh, Peter says, you are the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you. And that's, that's what I'm going to build my church on right there. The revelation that this is the one. This is the man. And, uh, but then Peter still doesn't understand the way it's going to happen. And Jesus is having to say, now listen, all of this happens uh, after the cross and in the shape of the cross. Chapter 17 is, is big. It's transfiguration. And this is where God double underlines Jesus as the one. Right? He had proclaimed at his baptism, you are my beloved son and I'm, I'm very pleased with you. And he's talking to Jesus. He's addressing Jesus. And the transfiguration, he's talking in the third person for the people around listening. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right? Those are the two great proclamations of God, audible proclamations of God over Jesus' life on earth. He's my son. I'm well pleased in him. He is my son. Listen to him. Again, God making explicit that revelation that Peter had. Yeah, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the way life should be. And the father saying, yes, you hear it? You're right. I've revealed that to you. And that's what you all need to know. The, ch- the teaching chunk is Matthew 18. All right, so Matthew 13 was the last one. Matthew 18 is the next large chunk of, of teaching. And I know that the one thing that confuses me about this outline, I will say, is that there are other chunks of teaching through the, <laughs> through the narrative sections. Um, so, uh, you know, who knows where to actually do it. But in this, in this scheme, which I think is helpful, um, chapter 18 is another, I mean, 16, 17, and 18 are so foundational in this book. Um, It's about the way life works in the kingdom. It's the economy of the kingdom. It's the upside-downness of the kingdom, right? And you see, what what he's building for his disciples is a vision of the kingdom, yes, but... But in the way that God has it, in the way that's been hidden, that's about to be revealed, in the way of the cross, all right? So Matthew 18 is a book about life in the kingdom, particularly in community. Matthew 16 and 18 are the two chapters in the Gospels, in all the Gospels, where the word church is used, okay? Church is founded on the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God in Matthew 16, and the church... Uh, 
is the community in which people uh, come to peace or, or uh, come to judgment of each other, right? Those are the two things. And Jesus is saying, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. What you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. There's a huge, uh, I mean, Matthew 18 is very important for us, the way we build as a church. Right? Our, the way that we build relationship is based heavily on the process described in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against him, go and tell him his fault. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't hear you, get two or three others, go and reason. You know, this is, this is straight out of Leviticus 19. Reason frankly with your brother. It's, it's right, right, after, right before it says, love your neighbor as yourself. All right? So Matthew 18 is the community chapter. Big, crucial parable about forgiveness. Profound parable about forgiveness in this chapter. The church is being formed. What do we need to understand? Almost more than anything, it's forgiveness. Right? <clears throat> so it's the upside-down way of life that can only be truly lived out as God's people embrace the cross. Matthew 18 describes the upside-down way of life. Whoever is greatest will be the least. Whoever is least will be the greatest. You have to be like a child. But that's, that can only be lived out. It's no, it's no coincidence that Jesus is saying, all right, yes, this is how life needs to be. And, I, and also, guess what? I'm going to the cross. Right? Those two are not unrelated. All right, the fifth section. And this is where it can get confusing because there's a lot of longer um, uh, monologues that Jesus has. Um, 19 through 25, the king comes to Jerusalem. The king comes to Jerusalem. The showdown with the Pharisees uh, reaches its, its zenith here. Um, and there's, there is large chunks of teaching, uh, the first of which is in chapter 23, which consists of the seven woes on the Pharisees. That's where he just lights into the Pharisees. Everything that's sort of been building up to this point. This is, this is the showdown. This is the moment. And Jesus pronounces these woes. Uh, and they're prophetic and they're incisive. And then uh, chapter 24 and 25 are him telling his disciples about uh, basically what's, what's to come in, in, the, in the days ahead. Right, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then also looking forward to the, to the end times and the, and the judgment, the return of Jesus. That's uh, known often as the Olivet Discourse, um, that longer section. And it's, it's in the other Gospels in different ways uh, as well. So then chapters 26 through 28 are the, the ending, the end narrative. Uh, so there's that middle section one other thing I'll mention about this, and this is interesting. Um, so you can divide it up into five chunks, and, and that's great. Maybe that, maybe that was Matthew's intention. Or maybe not. Uh, but what I think is really cool is this. What does the, so what's the first section of teaching of the five? 
Sermon on the Mount. How does that begin? Blessed. Blessed. All right, what's the last section of teaching? How does it begin? Whoa. Right? How, I mean, this is, this is straight out of Deuteronomy. Right? You got blessings and curses. Right? And Moses says, here, here it is. And what that was, was Moses saying, I have given you a choice. Life or death. Right? And so these middle sections are Jesus saying, here's a choice. Life, death. If you want to see me, you see life. To follow me is life. Now, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it, right? But here is the way of life, and here is the way of death, right? And it's bracketed by blessed are those and woe to the Pharisees, right? And he pronounces these curses on them. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, And that's what Moses was doing at the end of Deuteronomy. He's saying, you got to choose. He's choose this day. And this is what Jesus is saying all through his ministry. This is what his presence demands from us. Choose this day whom you will serve. I've not come to bring peace. We're not come to meld the two extremes together and find a, a, a sloppy mix in the middle. No. It's getting more extreme. The, the good will be more and more sold out and the bad will be more and more distant from him. Right? So it's, it's pretty cool, I think, the way that he is... Um, in the fulfillment passages, I mean, how many times does he say this directly fulfills something that the prophet said? But the way that he tells his story, and this is, this is what I want to move on to, to talk about uh, more. The way that he tells his story is the way that the Old Testament tells the story. Okay, And here's what I mean by that. Story, teaching. This, this is the whole shape of the Torah, right? Story, which tells mostly of God's acts toward and on behalf of his people, followed by his commands to his people, right? And so we have long chunks of, of story, long chunks of teaching. There's one big long chunk of teaching in, in the Torah called Leviticus. It's a whole book. It's all teaching. But... The whole thing is bracketed within a story. It's part of the flow of God's acts and history. Matthew's gospel works the same way. Jesus has long blocks of teaching, but they come at strategic points in the story that give light to his actions and follow up on his actions, which is exactly what the Old Testament story, particularly the Torah. His actions give light to his words. Okay? And that's exactly what Moses does all through the five books that we've studied this year. The law needs to be read in light of God's actions. And God's actions need to be read in light of the law. And they, they, they need each other. Okay? So, the Torah is everything in the first five books. It's not just the commands. We've talked about this before. You remember talking about this when we were in Exodus and how every command has some sort of action of God behind it. Even the Ten Commandments, which seem to be the most basic commands, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. 
I think we need to make some sort of like proclamation in the church that you can't post the Ten Commandments without saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Because they're not just moral laws to govern human society and sort of like, oh, look at this. This is, this is the beginning of Western Judeo-Christian law. The whole point of that was the relationship between God and his people. And that's the whole point of the law. So when Jesus says he comes to fulfill the law, he doesn't just mean that he came to do all the commands that are listed in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the whole story and to bring it to its conclusion, to bring it to its end. Meaning, not, not end, but to its goal. To its, its telos. Now, the law is a key part of that. But we always have to keep in mind, what function does the law serve within the story? And this is what, uh, failing to understand this, seems to be uh, one of the Pharisees' biggest failures. Failure to understand law in light of who God is. Right? And they, they say, they sit, you sit in the seat of Moses. Woe to you, Pharisees. You sit in the seat of Moses and you load people up with commands. And you don't lift one finger. This is the opposite of God. This is the opposite of what the Old Testament really reveals. What does the Old Testament reveal? Lots of commands. Yes. Given by a God who heard the cry of his people and raised up a deliverer and worked mighty acts on behalf of his people. So to move it further toward an application, there is a, and this has worked its way into our hearts deeply in America, there is a false dichotomy that we have between law and grace. It's false. People say, well, that's law when we live in grace. And even in our minds, we think that they're two separate things, that they serve different purposes. But that's not how the book of Gospel of Matthew works. It's not how the whole Old Testament works. And if we're caught in that, we really don't understand the way Scripture reveals God to us. We don't. If you think in terms of law versus grace, you don't understand the way Scripture reveals God to us and the way Jesus himself reveals God to us. Instead of thinking law or grace as two, mode, two opposing modes of relating to God. Like Jesus wasn't mad at the Pharisees because they were really obsessed with the law. That's not why he was mad. He wasn't mad because they put so much emphasis on the law. Jesus said your righteousness had to exceed that of the Pharisees. So we can't think of law and grace as two opposing modes of relating to God. Which lead to either legalism, on one hand, relating out of law, or antinomianism, which is just, you can do whatever you want. There's, I, don't have, I have no law. right? It's all grace. I don't have to worry about standards. Doesn't matter. Because even if I follow rules, it wouldn't change anything in the eyes of God. right? He loves me. It's great. I can't earn any favor. I can't. 
It's all undeserved. Well, yeah, that's true. But the law, the law is there for a reason. And Paul says, now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good if you understand that the whole Torah is law. Including the parts where God makes deep concessions on behalf of his people. And compromises himself in ways. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't compromise his holiness. Right? He maintains holiness and justice. But he bears with his people. He concedes certain things to them. He meets them where they are. He takes what they're able to give him. Right? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So we can't think of law and grace as two modes of relating to God. We need to think of, see the relationship between law and grace. They, they, they go together in one. There's command and there's concession all through the Old Testament. So here's one way to understand it in a more fruitful way. Law or statute or command, etc., fill in whatever synonym you want to use that uh, Psalm 119 gives us. Law is the appropriate response to the gracious acts of God. Following the law, and this is the relationship, law follows God's grace. Law is the appropriate response. Law, statute, commands, they are all appropriate responses to the gracious acts of God. God always acts first and gives a command based in his deep love for us and deep concern for our flourishing and well-being. Okay? Every should has its source in the heart of God. And if you don't, if you don't recognize that, then, then you are living a pharisaical life. Even if you're trying to be the best Christian you can be, if you really don't understand the heart of God, it, it doesn't matter. You're missing it. Jesus came and fulfilled all righteousness, it says, first by embracing his sonship and the pleasure of the Father over his life. <laughs> That's where it began. He, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And then, straight, the first thing, what is the first thing he does after he hears, with you I am well pleased? What does he do? He goes and fasts for 40 days. <laughs> he goes and endures confrontation in the wilderness with Satan. In other words, he did a really hard thing, like an elite level spiritual thing. (laughs) But he had just come up and he had just heard the pleasure of God over his life. And he radically and unfailingly lived out the commands of God. God. 
as a response and as, a, as, a, as a, an expression of his, the identity that he, that, he, that he fully embraced, which is, John spells it out very clearly for us, I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's it right there. That's grace and law all in one statement. I'm doing what God wants. I've come from heaven. (laughs) My home is in the most incredible place you could ever imagine. And my father is the most incredible person you could ever imagine. That's why I live the way I do. Because this is the way it's like up there. We love. We sacrifice ourselves. We empty ourselves. So, that's the, that, that's the thing on my heart. And that's how the, the structure of Matthew <laughs> can bring us into the heart of God. Do you see that? To see Jesus living out his life, teaching us what we should do. But this is all, if you, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, just, if you just take the Sermon on the Mount, and you can read this all over the place, but just take the Sermon on the Mount and look at the way Jesus, I mean, geniusly relates to the law, doesn't relax the law, and says, don't ever relax the law. If anyone wants to relax the law, you get, just send them away. But at the same time, makes it so much more about a, relational, a relationship with the Father. And that's the true fulfillment of the law. And sums it all up in this. What's the greatest command? Love, which is a relational word. Now, how do you love? If you really want to follow the law, how do you love without understanding <laughs> the relational part of that? It doesn't make any sense. So this is, this is what I was on my heart. Uh, and... and as I was reading the, the outline, I was like, oh, this is like the Old Testament. And this is, this is the way God relates to his people. All right, so here's what you can ask yourself. When you, when you become aware of something that you feel like you need to do better, well, what do you do? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you move forward in that? How do you, when you become aware of a should in your life, what do you do? And I want to encourage you to, for every open loop in your life, for everything that you feel like you need to do, you need to obey in a better way or this or that, ask yourself, what in the heart of God and why do I need to do this? Why is this a good thing? Why is this the thing I need to do? Or you could ask it this way. How is this... How does this demonstrate the the right response to God's grace in my life? God's overwhelming grace in my life. And that will set you free. That will set you free. You need to forgive this person that's really hard to forgive. It's going to take me a while. It's going to take me a while. I got to... Oh, the hurt is deep. Right? Well, this parable in Matthew 18, what does it say? What about the way you hurt God? (laughs) Which makes whatever someone did to you pale in comparison 
It's a perfect example of how Scripture makes a command on our lives. Forgive. And that's actually one of the starkest commands in, in Scripture. Forgive, or God won't forgive you. Now, that can be a, be a threatening thing. You can hear it as a threatening thing. Well, better forgive. Or you can come to the place of freedom where you said, how could I not forgive? That's good. I'm alive because of forgiveness. I haven't been burned up in the fires of agony because of forgiveness. Why, who am I to choke this person for 20 bucks when I've been forgiven a debt worth millions? And the more you understand things like that, the more you understand the depth of God's love towards you, the more you see the law and the commands that God puts on you, not as some like, oh, I got to live up to this. But you kind of go, look at what, what next? How can we, how can we, how can we uh, respond to God in a better, in a, in a more worshipful way? How can we really, uh, how can we really bring him more glory? Think about what, what should I, I mean, just little things. What should I wear? Well, what does the people think is the most modest thing around here? That's not the place to go. The place to go is, how can I, first of all, what does God think about women? And how would he have women present themselves to the world? That's a good place to start in thinking about what you should wear. <laughs> Don't start with the, the modesty conversations and the how many inches and the where and the, and the what, okay? <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> you understand? What's the best way to frame this masterpiece that God has created? Because he deserves, he deserves, he did a great thing in creating woman. What a glorious thing. How can we best present this to the world? Should we look at the current trends? Should we Go on campus and see what everyone's wearing. <laughs> As Paul would say, by no means. God forbid. <laughs> May it never be. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? We get these, we, we get these, and then we start to feel legalistic. And well, oh, I don't know, that's just legalistic. Well, the, don't, don't be legalistic. And, but here's the thing. If you really seek God, you'll have the highest standards of anyone. And it won't feel like a standard at all. It'll feel like an amazing and a... Uh, it's a response, right? So law is a response to who God is. What we should do should stem from what God has done for us. And that's the connection. That's a, that's a connection I want to draw. And I want you to look at that through as you... That's another lens you can put on as you go through Matthew. It's a relationship to the law. 
Because it seems confusing. Jesus upholds the law, but he also kind of subverts it. Like he goes through and he eats grain. And they got all mad about what, how he treated the Sabbath. Right? They'll keep it holy. And he makes a profound statement. He says, um, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Which is a perfect, another great way of saying exactly what I'm trying to say. We've got it all wrong. If we think about law as this thing between us and the glorious liberty of the sons of God, then, then we've got we to rewind. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, so, yeah, if you feel... And, and so this, I, I know this, that there are, people, there are people who are trying to figure out how to live in this community. And, yeah, we have things that we've decided on as a community, sort of general standard. We don't have a manual, but that's, that's very uh, by design, right? Because people want to figure out what the policy is and do it. For I don't know why, for approval or, or so that people don't think that they're rebels or, or people think that they really want to be here or I don't know. But what our community is about is what's the best way to respond to the incredible thing that God has done in our lives? In a way, how can we live our lives out in this earth? How can we follow, how can we be commissioned into the earth and be salt and light What's the best way to do that? And luckily, Scripture gives us great and, and very specific examples. And if we want to glorify God with our lives, he's got some great suggestions for us. <laughs> he's got some great things, to, some great lifestyle choices uh, that we could make, and it would, wow, it would really just glorify him. But it, it all needs to be rooted in in seeking, to do, in seeking what I should do, what you're, what you're seeking ultimately is how do I respond to the love of God in my life? How can I respond? Because it's all his initiative. It's all his initiative. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. And then if you, if you have questions, because I think... That, you know, questions or any kind of conversation would be good around this, even if it's like specifics. Um, but so many times the, the conversations around what we should or shouldn't or what's the standard and all this stuff, it is strangely uh, detached <laughs> from an appreciation of God's grace and love and initiative in our lives. It becomes you know, technical parsing out of what's the thing, and you know, we build arguments and we build cases for things and why this should be the case. But there's one case that should be made, and it's how amazing is God? And how indebted are we to his grace? How can we possibly, how can we possibly demonstrate that to the world? Right? And this will get back to Deuteronomy 4. Where it says, when you, when you follow this law, people are going to say, what nation is like them with laws like this? Whose God is so near to them. That's the proper legalism. Right? When people go, look at those laws. But it's not just the laws. It's the way they relate to their God. Wow. There's no other nation like that. So that's what God's building here. That's, that's what our community is. 
Um, so let's pray. And then if you have any comments or, or conversation points, uh, by all means, bring them, bring them up. Father, thank you for your word um, and for loving us. And Father, thank you for initiating towards us. Thank you that you uh, gave your son, that you sent your son, that you did not withhold your son from us. Lord, how could we ever respond to that in a way that, that is remotely what you deserve? But Lord, I pray that you would bring us to that place of indebtedness and humility. And from that place, we would seek and make decisions on how to live. That we would hear scripture and obey you, God. Because we know who you are. And because we want to please you. Because of things you've already done. Things that we have no control over. Lord, you love us. And we can't say anything about that. We can't do anything to, to negate it. Where are we going to go? Make our bed in hell? You're there. So Lord, I pray that you would, you would deliver us from, from confusion on these issues of legalism or, or grace and of the standards that we set for ourselves and that we would just see you and that we would respond in absolute obedience and surrender to, to, to your ways, God, your will. You taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's our prayer, Lord. Not our will, but yours be done. And we thank you for that. But I pray that in these days you would teach us, Lord, individually, as a community, how to live in, in total obedience to your law, Lord, as a response to your grace. And Jesus, you are, you are our master in that regard. You did that. That is how you fulfilled all righteousness. And you came and lived a perfect life. And we want to obey what the Father said about you and listen to you. And ask that you would teach us these things, Lord, for your glory, so that people could look at us and say, what kind of God is that? In Jesus' name, amen.